Good morning again. Professional boxer Mike Tyson once uh, famously, he's got a lot of good quotes, a lot that I wouldn't share in a sermon, but one of his quotes uh, is this. He was asked what his plan was going into a big fight against Evander Holyfield, and he said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. That's some sage advice from Mike Tyson, but it's pretty true. I, I think there's a lot of situations in our lives where we could say that makes a lot of sense. As Christians and as a church, I think we do that a lot too. We're pretty good at having slick plans. You know, we're good at having um, everything looking perfect until things go haywire, until we figuratively or even literally get punched in the mouth. Uh, even in the step one class that we're going to be doing this afternoon, uh, I'm going to be presenting, or not this afternoon, right after the service, I'm going to be presenting a lot of the, the plans and structures that we've put in place, you know, to try to uh, be faithful in this work. But these plans can go south uh, pretty quick. And so what happens when we get punched in the mouth? Last week we started uh, the first half of Paul and Barnabas's missionary journey. And we asked the question, who is a missionary? What is a missionary? And we looked at the dictionary definition, which is a person undertaking a mission. And so as Christians, if you're a Christian, you are a missionary. We are on a mission to make the gospel known. We're on a mission to show and share Jesus' love. We are on a mission to make disciples. And so what happens when we get pushback? What happens when uh, we're mocked? What happens when we're punched in the mouth? Does everything fall apart? It can. It certainly can, especially if we're doing it on our own strength or, or really relying on persevering based on our own fortitude. But this morning, we're going to be looking at the rest of this first missionary journey in Acts where Paul and Barnabas demonstrate how to persevere not on their own strength, but in the grace of God. And so that's our big idea this morning, our big idea. Being a missionary means persevering in the grace of God. All right? Parents, you can get your kids to repeat it. Everyone, after me. Being a missionary means persevering in the grace of God. Hopefully there was better participation uh, in your homes than there was here. Uh, <laughs> Being a missionary means persevering in the grace of God. Last week, uh, I ended the sermon with a quote from Tony Morita, pastor and author. Tony Morita, he said this, Grab your Bible, your passport, and your first aid kit, and make the light of the gospel known in this dark world. We'll see Paul and Barnabas on this same mission today, taking uh, the light of the gospel into a dark world, and they're going to particularly need that first aid kit. Just as a reminder, Acts 13, Acts chapter 13, we ended last week, uh, and we ended with the gospel spreading through the whole region. And following that, Paul and Barnabas were driven out of town. They were forced out. And so this sets the stage for chapter 14. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to uh, open them up, and uh, let's read and hear from God's word. Acts 14, we're going to be doing the whole chapter, 1 through 28. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. 
But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and others with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities in Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds, with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Saul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out to the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is God's word. So they're driven out of Pisidian Antioch, and now they head to Iconium. 90 miles away, 145 kilometers from Google Earth, uh, my source, <laughs> shows me that this was a beautiful journey. Gorgeous rolling hills, snow-capped Sultan Mountains. But rolling hills are fun until you have to walk 145 kilometers through them. I remember I did a triathlon in the Muskokas, and on the 
uh, Muskoka Ironman website, they said, beautiful 90-kilometer bike ride through the rolling hills of the Muskokas. I can affirm, rolling hills are fun until you have to go up and down and up and down and up and down. And that was only 90 kilometers, not 90 miles. And that was on a bike, not walking. And as we talked about last week, part of being a missionary is doing the work. Right? They set out from Syrian Antioch. They sailed to Cyprus through the unpredictable winds and waters of the Mediterranean. They traveled across Cyprus. That's 240 kilometers tip to tip. They got back in the boat, back into the unpredictable seas. Then they got to mainland. They went another 160 kilometers through the Taurus Mountains. Again, we talked about that last week. That's a notoriously terrible journey. Bandits filling the mountains Flooded streams, rough terrain, massive elevation gain. So this is physical perseverance, but these missionaries, they push through. They persevere physically. And they also persevere in courageous proclamation. That's our first point, courageous proclamation. And so in Iconium, they demonstrate their absolute default position Paul and Barnabas, they keep coming back to the gospel. Uh, If you hit a factory reset on these guys at this point, they would go right back to the gospel. We see through these 28 verses uh, of chapter 14 in verse 1, 3, 7, 9, 15, 16, 17, 21, and 25, they are either preaching the gospel or Luke is describing them preaching the gospel. I am not a great squash player, and Kyle here can attest to that. The majority of my squash games in my life have been against him, and I've, if my memory serves me right, I've won one, uh, and we played a lot. But I had another friend who's a good squash player, and he told me that the number one tip in squash is to come back to the tee. The lines on a squash court kind of make a tee, and right in the center where those lines intersect is the center of the court. So you make your shot, and you come back to the tee, and you're ready for the next shot. And that was his number one tip. Just get back to the T. Get back to the T. And Paul and Barnabas understand this idea. They come back to the gospel. They come back to the gospel. They come back to the gospel. They'd be crazy, like any sport, squash or not, to be out of position. And so they know they're right in position when they're preaching the gospel. And so they come back to the gospel, come back to the gospel. Now, what is this gospel? This is the gospel that's transformed their life. This is the gospel, literally good news. It's their only hope. This is the good news that God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, created everything, including humanity. But humanity rebelled. Humanity sinned. They went their own way. All of humanity, from Adam and Eve all the way through Paul and Barnabas to me and to you, we've rebelled against God. We've gone our own way. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we've fallen short. We've created this chasm that we can't cross. But God in his mercy made a way for us to be made right with him. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come as a man to live a sinless life, a life that we could never live, and to die paying the penalty that we deserved. He didn't stay dead, though. He demonstrated God's wrath being satisfied in his rising from the dead. And this is good news because all we have to do is put our hope and trust in him. We have to turn from our sinful ways 
repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's our hope. And so if you're not a Christian and you're hearing this, I pray that you would consider this good news, that you would consider this gospel. Today could be that day of redemption for you. And for the Christians listening, we can't graduate from the gospel. The gospel isn't, as Tim Keller says, the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A through Z or Z of Christianity. And so this is what Paul and Barnabas do. They keep coming back to the gospel. They follow the same pattern they followed in every city they can. They get to town and they say, we're going to preach the gospel. Where should we go? Well, let's go to the Jewish synagogue because at the Jewish synagogue, they know the Old Testament. They, they understand where we're coming from. And what Paul and Barnabas need to do is connect the dots that Jesus is that Savior, is the Messiah, is the one that's coming to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. And just like this pattern of going to a synagogue, so we see the pattern of a mixed reaction, a mixed response. But amazingly, we get a report from Luke, as usual, that many believed in verse 1. But we see that some didn't believe. Others saw it. It's not that they just didn't believe. They saw it as such an attack against what they were doing that they did this work of anti-evangelism. Right? They, they poisoned the minds of the people. And these attacks still happen. Minds are poisoned right, left, and center on the truths of the gospel. And so part of our work in evangelism is confronting this poison and bringing the only antidote, which is the gospel, which is the true good news. And this is what we see Paul and Barnabas do. Verse 3, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. They continue in this courageous proclamation. And we see just a few verses later in verse 5, people are still divided. So those that are against them attempt to shut these guys up by attempting to kill them. And so Paul and Barnabas flee to Lystra and Derby. Now even when they're forced to flee, we see in verse 7, and there they continue to preach the gospel. Default position, keep coming back to the gospel. In this, we see a level of perseverance, certainly. There's people trying to kill them, and they keep going. We also see a level of practicality. They could have just hunkered down, said, let's hang tight for a couple months, let the dust settle. But no, they keep going. They say, hey, what we got to do right now is honestly stay alive. That's how we're going to keep preaching the gospel. And so sometimes... There's a level of practicality by just staying alive to preach the gospel. And again, we see more walking, another 20 and 60 miles for Lystra and Derby. These guys were brave, but they weren't dumb. They knew that staying alive uh, was important, but it wasn't for their own comfort. We get no hint of that. But it was for more courageous proclamation. And so in Lystra, we see a very different place, a very different place than Pisidian Antioch, a very different place from Iconium. Uh, they get there, and there appears to be no synagogue. Uh, there's no, uh, or little Jews. The Jews had little influence in Lystra. 
And so the scene has changed, but the mission absolutely has not changed. Paul is again speaking to the crowds. We hear a story of a crippled man healed. This is a story that's very similar to Acts 3, Acts chapter 3, when the lame beggar is healed. And like all miracles, this is a powerful work from God that again mirrors the doing and teaching ministry of Jesus. Now both miracles, the one in Acts 3 and the one in Acts 14 today, result in a level of chaos, a level of excitement. Acts 3, it says they were utterly astounded. And it says people ran to see what was going on and Peter preached the gospel. In Acts 14, we see that they are astounded, but they respond with worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And they say in their own language that that Paul and Barnabas are, are Zeus and Hermes. Now, Paul and Barnabas didn't know the language, but they clearly connected the dots when the priest shows up with the oxen and sacrifices. There's a local legend in this area of Lystra that at one point, uh, Zeus and Hermes showed up uh, in the form of a man, and they were shown no hospitality, and the whole region was punished with a deadly flood. And so it would seem that this is why these guys uh, in Lystra, they overcompensate. They say, oh, maybe this is happening again. This is Zeus and Hermes. And when Paul and Barnabas connect the dots that this is happening, they react strongly. It says they tore their clothes. This is a sign of horror, distress, um, protest, really. And this is the opposite reaction we see uh, in chapter 12 when we saw Herod being worshipped by the people, and he just ate it all up. These guys do the opposite. They say, we're just men. They, they can't take that kind of worship. They say, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul redirects this idol worship and reminds them that they are just men. And so we see a consistent, courageous proclamation. And we also see something really important in Paul's response. And that's our next point. Flexible evangelism. Flexible evangelism. Last week we saw Paul preach to the Jews. And we saw that he started in the Old Testament. He tailors the message. He tailors the unchanging message message, the unchanging gospel, to the ears of those hearing. He shapes the message in a way that they can understand it. He confronts idol worship for these people in Lystra right away. He says, turn to God. If he preached the same Old Testament sermon that he did with the Jews, he might have lost them. It might have meant very little to them. If he went even just beelined straight to Jesus, Maybe they would have just thought Jesus was another one of their many gods. But Paul starts affirming that there is only one living God. And that God has made himself visible through common grace of creation, through the rains that bring food. So just like Psalm 19 that we started our service off with, the heavens declare the glory of God. God's glory is evident in his glorious creation. Now we see in Acts 14 here that the sermon appears to be 
well, it is short. It appears to be cut short, even. Maybe Luke didn't record every single word that Paul shared. But what I think is more likely is the crowd cut him short. They were getting rowdy. They, uh, it says, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. But this is still a good reminder that the gospel we preach, the gospel we share cannot change, but the way that we proclaim this good news can and should. We need to share this good news in a way that makes sense. We need to confront the idols in people's lives, and we need to point them to Jesus. Now, most people in the world share a desire for love, a desire for community, for freedom, to get rid of guilt and shame, to have meaning, significance in life, to have satisfaction and joy. We share an attraction to the beauty of creation. But it's important when we share the gospel that we meet people where they're at and then point them to the cross of Christ. John Stott, we're back with a John Stott quote. John Stott says this, Wherever we begin, we shall end with Jesus Christ, who is himself the good news and who alone can fulfill all human aspirations. So whether Paul made it to presenting Jesus or not here, we see how easily manipulated these people are. It says some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium to continue poisoning the minds of these people. They couldn't just let Paul and Barnabas be out of sight, out of mind. They did the same uh, relentless journey to track them down. And they were successful, we see. We see that they turned the people on the missionaries and we see that the missionaries are forced to persevere through horrific attacks. Horrific attacks. So far, they've persevered through courageous proclamation, flexible evangelism, and now horrific attacks. Paul is stoned. Right? They throw stones at him. They beat him with stones in an effort to kill him. Paul is familiar with stoning. He, he knows it well both from what we saw early in the chapter that people have tried to stone him, but he also knows it from the other side. Remember, Paul, uh, then referred to as Saul, approved of the violent execution of Stephen before Paul came to Christ. I wonder what was going through Paul's head. Was he praying the same prayer that Stephen was praying, forgiving his attackers and murderers? But Paul counted the cost. Sometimes we saw he took steps to stay alive, but he didn't value his life more than Christ. He was willing to die if that's what it took to make the gospel known. We see a modern example of a man named Jim Elliott, or more modern example at least, who was attacked and killed, martyred for his faith 65 years ago, just two days ago on Friday. He, along with four friends, were attempting to share the gospel with a remote tribe in Ecuador. Now, there is a lot to that story. But they died on that beach. They could never know the impact that their deaths would have. But what's amazing, and I encourage you to, to read about this story, is their own wives and children 
continued this work to share the gospel with this tribe, eventually many of them going and living with this tribe, and many in this tribe eventually becoming Christians. Some of the actual murderers in that tribe who killed these men became father and grandfather figures to these men's children. It's it's an incredible story of God's grace. We don't have time for the whole thing, but it's a story worth considering. But I love this quote and this prayer from Jim Elliott. He says, I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. So Jim Elliott understood this, his friends understood this, and Paul understood this, that even through horrific attacks, a missionary could persevere by the grace of God. So Paul is stoned. He's beaten so badly that they think he's dead. And so they drag out his limp body, toss him outside the city. See the other Christians gather around. Maybe they were nursing his wounds. Certainly they were praying for him. And then Paul pops up in typical Paul fashion. Paul gets up. Now Luke doesn't record divine intervention here, a divine healing or a miracle, but whether it was or not, we see incredible perseverance and incredible bravery. Paul goes right back into the city. And then the next day they travel to Derby, the next city on the journey, and they preach the gospel. And we see again a report from Luke that many are saved. And so as we consider how to apply this, I think it's important as Christians, we think about what strikes fear in you. I'm sure being stoned is not on our to-do list. But maybe it's something else that seems equally, or if not even more terrifying, ridicule, rejection. Whatever that is, Paul and Barnabas, they give us an example of grace-enabled endurance. Grace-enabled perseverance. They were sinners just like you and I. But they got it. The gospel had changed them, had changed their hearts. And they had to share it. That was their default position. So even in their return journey, they could have taken a much shorter route and much safer route back to their starting point, but they persevered and they were devoted to the local church. That's our last point, devoted to the local church. They retrace their steps. They go back to the cities where they were falsely worshipped, where they were driven out, where people tried to kill them. But they couldn't abandon these new churches, these new Christians. So they go back city to city. Verse 22 we read, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they understood this value, this significant idea of discipleship. They encouraged these Christians in these cities. They taught these Christians in these cities. And they raised up leaders in these churches and in these cities. There's so much that we can learn here about discipling. Uh, There's so much we can learn here about church planting and, and church leadership. But let's look for a second just at a few of Paul's priorities. He wasn't spending his time organizing a big building project for them all to have a nice place to meet. He, uh, we don't get any word of him crafting a clever, uh, pragmatic multiplication strategy. 
But what he was doing is he was making sure that they were continuing in the faith. He was drilling deep what he had been teaching them. He was also ensuring pastoral oversight. He was the Apostle Paul. He's the man, right? He could have, uh, he had a lot of authority. And so maybe he could have built this ministry on his shoulders, but he knew what would be healthy for the church uh, was not to build this ministry on him being the, the guy. He raised up leaders, a plurality of elders within the church to give oversight. He would later, in other letters to Timothy and Titus, he would set out what the qualifications were for those elders. This is the same structure and the same qualifications that we use today. We want to be a church that raises up men in our own church to shepherd, encourage, and oversee this church. And then finally, we see Paul encourages them to continue trusting God, persevering through the inevitable trials. And so through this entire chapter, we've seen that God's grace is amazing. It's because of his grace that that we can have a hope. It's because of his grace that we can even exist. It's because of this grace that we would dedicate our lives to sharing this hope. And it's because of this amazing grace that we can persevere as missionaries. We saw this missionary journey, chapter 13, start with them being sent out by the church and the Holy Spirit for the work that the Holy Spirit had set out for them. In chapter 14, we see ends with them reporting back to the sending church all that God has done through them. Verse 27, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. What an incredible example we see from Paul and Barnabas. We have the same message of hope. We have the same commissioning by Jesus to make disciples. We can rest and persevere in this same grace. This this is our heritage. I heard a story just this week of a B-17 bomber, a plane flying over Germany near the very end of World War II. They were peppered with shells. But they continued to fly. Even the fuel tank was hit. And the flight crew couldn't believe that they were still flying. But they just kept going. They had no other choice. And they landed safely back at their base. They examined the plane. And they found in the plane and in the fuel tank 11 unexploded shells. Now, sometimes shells did not go off. There were duds. They existed. But this was beyond explanation. So they carefully examined each of the shells. Inside each shell, they found no explosive charge. One shell, though, wasn't completely empty. In it, they found rolled up a little piece of paper written by a check worker that read, this is all we can do for you now. And so evidently, some check worker or workers took considerable risk to do some good by disarming these shells. He or she likely never knew the impact that their bravery or risks that they were taking would have. They could have kept working in the munitions factory, taking care of themselves, and they would have never seen the impact, never known the difference. But this is a great metaphor, I think, for the work of a missionary. 
pouring yourself out, taking significant risks, and maybe never seeing the impact of those sacrifices. Maybe getting glimpses here or there, right? Things were promising at times for Paul and Barnabas. But very well could go to the grave not knowing what God did through their faithful perseverance. And so you may too go to the grave not knowing what God does with your work, his work through you. Now Jim Elliott and his friends, they understood this on that beach in Ecuador. Paul and Barnabas, they understood this on their first missionary journey. They persevered. They did the work. There was some fruit, but I'm sure there was a lot of moments where it felt unprofitable or bleak. But in hindsight, the impact that God made through their faithfulness was remarkable. And so Heritage Grace Church, let's continue in this heritage, this heritage of persevering in God's amazing grace, this heritage of grace. Let's grab the torch. Let's live on mission. Let's have a plan that rests in Christ alone so that we can persevere and that we can have a plan even when we inevitably get punched in the mouth. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would enable us by your endless grace to courageously proclaim the gospel that we would be flexible in our evangelism, that we would be willing to go through whatever attack comes, and that we would be devoted to the local church. God, help us by your power persevere like we've seen these missionaries do. Remind us more and more of the goodness of the gospel as we seek to glorify you by showing and sharing your love. God, I pray that that prayer from Jim Elliott would be true for us, that we seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Amen.